As we mentioned, our text is Psalm 109. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 24. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 109 and similar psalms, Psalm 137, these are the kind of, of songs that have shocked a lot of people. In fact, Psalm 109 and 137 have almost single-handedly brought about the more modern phenomenon of hymn singing, uh, composing new hymns. And who in the world wants to sing Psalm 137? O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Who wants to sing that? Who wants to sing Psalm 109? May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. Who wants to sing that? Rather sing Jesus loves me or the old rugged cross or and can it be. At least focus on Jesus Christ rather than dashing the, the infants of your, your enemy. There's been a lot of different reactions to Psalm 109. Some people are, are angry. Some are scared. And mostly they're just embarrassed. And they're embarrassed because what Psalm 109 says seems to completely contradict what our Lord Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you, love even your enemies. To be honest with you, I, I wasn't going to preach on Psalm 109. I had to work on it. It's part of the commentary I'm working on with other ministers. I thought, write the commentary and leave it at that. But when you get into it, you realize that there is something absolutely amazing, beautiful, and important about Psalm 109. Maybe your initial reaction when we read Psalm 109 wasn't very positive. I hope by the end of the sermon it is. The thing about Psalm 109 is that it's from a, a genre or a type of literature known as imprecatory lament. And let me explain. A lament is a lamentation, which means that when David wrote this, he was doing it from a broken heart. David was weeping. David was beside himself with grief for the horrible, untrue things that people were doing to him and saying to him. And then in verse 6, the lament turns into a, an imprecatory style, which basically means that David is praying to God to curse his enemy in a most horrible fashion. And then as typical of a lament, it ends with a, a word of praise and thanksgiving to God. You still might think, why would you preach on a, sermon, on a psalm like this? Well, let me tell you a little story <clears throat> That might just help you to see where we're going to go with this. There was a young man from Rwanda, and there's a name that conjures up a, a horrible image. Between 1990 and, and 1994, the Hutu-led government murdered almost a million Tutsis, almost a million. When the war was finally over, the Rwanda was flooded with missionaries who spoke about the love of God in this war-torn country. Now, this young man, 
Almost his whole family had been killed. One day, three brothers were murdered in one day. And he listened to those missionaries talk about the love of God, love your neighbor. And he says, these, these guys, they don't know what they're talking about. This is not real. And he's right. Those missionaries had no idea. Most of us today don't either. I mean, we hear about ISIS. We hear about Boko Haram in Nigeria and what they did to those 300 Christian girls. But we don't want to know the details. We don't want to know this kind of stuff. But if you are in Nigeria or Rwanda, or if you're a Christian in, in, in Syria or Iraq or Iran or Pakistan or China, it's a different world. The brutality that they live with, we don't even begin to comprehend. So this young man who became a, a minister, he read Psalm 137, which is a lot like Psalm 109, and he found peace. He found peace. Psalm 109 gives a man like that peace because he realized it was not his to fix injustices. You give it to God. He'll take care of it. He'll do the right thing. You give your burdens, your anxieties, all the horror that you went through, you give it to God. He'll do the right thing. And meanwhile, you can live your life under God's love and care normally and wonderfully to his praise and his glory. You see, brothers and sisters, if you take Psalm 109, 137, other imprecatory psalms, if you take that out of your reading and out of your singing, you'll leave a hole in your Christian comfort and understanding. Psalm 109 is important for our only comfort in life and in death. Summarize our text in this way. The weeping Messiah trusts in God to defend him. We'll see three things. Attack on the Lord's anointed, curse by the Lord's anointed, and thanksgiving from the Lord's anointed. Before we jump into our text, we should comment on our theme in three points. We all know that Psalm 109 is written by David, and I don't mention his name once. Instead, I talk about Messiah or the anointed one. By the way, Messiah means the anointed one, so it's the same person. The reason is, brothers and sisters, I'd like to make this very clear, is that David himself is the Lord's anointed. He is Messiah, that means anointed one. He's God's king, he represents God, but what that also means is any attack against David is ultimately an attack against God. That's why he says in verse 21, he pleads with God, deal well with me for your name's sake. Your name's on the line, O God. When I, your anointed one, am attacked, then you're being attacked. And I give it over to you. You have to take care of it in, in your own way. Now, we know that David is not the anointed one. He is not the Messiah. That's his coming son. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the whole Psalter, all 150 Psalms, you see that in the introductory Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, they all show that this book is the book of Jesus. 
The Psalms are all about the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. These are his songs. He sings them. It's his message. And ultimately, it is his experience. You know, Psalm 108, 109, 110 are all written by David. When you get to 110, which is very familiar, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. That means the God of heaven says to my son, who is my Lord and my Savior. And he's exalted to God's right hand. His enemies become his footstool. So Psalm 110 is the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is Psalm 109? That's his humiliation. Psalm 109, 110, tell the story of Jesus' life. His humiliation, climaxing in his death on the cross, and then his resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God, where he is made King of kings and Lord of lords. The entire Psalter actually gives this message. The introductory Psalms 1 and 2 make that also very clear. We read there in Psalm 2, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Is the attack on the Lord's anointed. Is the attack on our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 109, together with 110, we're entering into the story of Jesus Christ. And when you understand it and believe in this, your story is also caught up in the story of Jesus Christ. Psalm 109 and 110 give the message and the hope for your life as well. Now, as we read the first five verses, there's no doubt in our mind that David is lamenting. He he is so caught up. He is so deeply disturbed by all the vicious attacks against him. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, maybe David's not such a nice guy and that's why everyone's speaking badly about him. He murdered Uriah. He, he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Not a very nice guy. But it's true, what David did there was awful. But basically, he was a good man. He says here in the Psalm, I offered them friendship. I'm a man of prayer. I did nothing wrong. And look what they're doing to me. It is completely unjust that people within Israel, within the church, are attacking David. Now, we say to ourselves, this could have been in the time of Saul when King Saul was relentlessly pursuing him. But in all probability, David is thinking here of his own son Absalom, who literally wanted to dethrone David. And with that came the betrayal of of Ahithophel and the curse of Shimei. So what David is saying is here, don't be silent, Lord. Do something, say something. Do something about this injustice. And David throws himself entirely on the mercy of God. Now, we've already pointed out that what David is talking about is not just his experience is the experience of his coming son, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at these opening verses and you read in verses two and three about wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. And with words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. We all recognize that that's fulfilled on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was arrested 
brought before the Sanhedrin, before the council. The lies, the viciousness, the hatred, they wanted to kill him. And eventually they did. We read in Matthew 26 that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They couldn't find one bad thing about Jesus, and even the false stuff wouldn't stick because nobody would believe it anyway. And then we watched the soldiers. Oh, how they beat him and tormented him. Jesus was fainting in pain and loss of blood. And when he hung on the cross, the passing crowds hurled insults at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And what was Jesus' crime? His crime is that he loved them. For three years, he healed their sick. He cast out their demons. He raised their dead. He preached a forgiveness. He says, you don't have to go to the temple with your animals to sacrifice. Just believe in me. I will forgive your sins. He's the light who shone in the darkness and they hated him, and they rejected him, and they murdered him. And so Jesus laments, just like his father David. He laments and says in Matthew 27, we read there that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quotation from Psalm 22, which is also a psalm of David. The lamenting Old Testament king is a pattern, is a prophecy of the lament of our Lord Jesus Christ who hung on a cross, unbelievably tormented, humiliated, and murdered. You know, brothers and sisters, throughout history, Christians have been under attack. In the time of the Reformation, we have Martin Luther, the lies that were told about him, how they hunted for him, how they wanted to kill him. More recently in our world, I mentioned some examples already, but something that I can't get out of my mind is what happened in Nigeria with the Boko Haram. Uh, it's an extreme militant Muslim group kidnapping 300 Christian girls, doing horrible, unspeakable things. Some of them haven't even been returned, haven't been found. Who knows what happened to them? And in our day and age, you know, as Christians, we are taunted for being homophobic, for being unscientific. Try to get a job in this country as a politician or as a biologist at a, at a university. And we all know the threats that are being leveled against us right now as Christian schools and government funding. You know, sometimes as a Christian, when you, when you see the horrible things that, that happen, you are so stunned and so overwhelmed, you hardly can continue. That's the thing. If you are a, a decent, honest, good person and people viciously attack you, it can put you into a deep, spiraling depression. That's why it's so important to know your scripture 
to see how a man like David, how he was insulted without cause, to look at our Lord Jesus Christ. He had hurt not even a fly in what they did to him. And we need to understand that, that if we're a Christian, if you follow Christ, you better be ready to take up your cross and follow him. You will be humiliated. You will be made fun of. You might lose a job. You might lose funding for the school. These are the realities of the world that we live in. Expect it. Know that Jesus went through it already and that his story becomes your story as well. We can find refuge under the wings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that more as we continue in our sermon. We come to our second point, the curse by the Lord's anointed. I'm not gonna go verse by verse. It's quite a, a long section here. It's also very dark. It's unbelievable how vicious the words are, what David wants to see done to his accuser. Becomes pretty clear in verse six that even though there are a number of accusers, David speaks about one man who must be the, the ringleader and the leader. And what David envisions there in verse six is that they're in court. And the man is standing there with someone beside him, let's say like a lawyer. They're both evil men. But David's accuser is so evil that even his lawyer says, you are an evil man. David wants that exposed, the evil of his accuser. And it's pretty clear that what David wants is that his accuser will die. His wife will be a widow. His kids will be orphaned. They'll be penniless. They'll die out. What is really uh, astonishing is that David says in verse 14 and 15 that the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord. Why would David pray that their sins not be forgiven? You see the hint in verse seven when it says, when he has tried, let him be found guilty and may his prayers condemn him. It is understood that if these people repented, of course David would say, may your sins be forgiven, but they don't repent. They hate him. They will never repent. And therefore their own prayers will condemn them. But all of this comes to a climax. We come to the heart of the matter in verse 21. But you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. Since David is the Lord's anointed, what he's saying here is, Lord, I'm under attack, and that means you're under attack. And you'll have to deal with this for your name's sake. Lord, it is yours. I, I give it over to you. You need to deal with our enemy. And again, we turn to our Lord Jesus Christ, trying to understand this in the context of the suffering and humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that we said in our introduction that the problem that people have with Psalm 109 is that it contradicts what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Those are words to live by. You love your neighbor, not just because they're nice to you. They might not be nice. They might be your enemy. You love them. That's what you have to do. 
At the same time, we see that our Lord Jesus Christ could get pretty angry and he could curse people. We read in, in Matthew 23 how angry and upset he was with the scribes and the Pharisees. He was so angry that he uttered this curse, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to death? That's what Jesus says. Paul says similar things. You come with a, a different gospel, you're damned. Look at the book of Revelation. With the book of Revelation, the curses that are uttered there on the ungodly and those who reject Jesus Christ. There's also an example in Acts 1. In Acts 1, Psalm 109 verse 8 is quoted in connection with Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot denied Jesus, betrayed him, and he died. And then Peter says, we need a new apostle. And he quotes Psalm 109 and says, may another take his place of leadership. Do you see what that means? Even a disciple of Jesus Christ can be cursed. A disciple who followed Jesus for three years can be cursed and thrown away and replaced. So we're trying to make sense of this. Jesus says, love your enemy. At the same time, there are curses for the enemy. How do we understand this and reconcile this? Now, I don't wanna sound arrogant, brothers and sisters, but I, I think actually this is pretty easy. On a personal level, in our relationship with people, we are to love our neighbor, do good even to our enemy. But there's a bigger picture. And that's the picture of God, who's a covenant God with promises and demands, blessings and curses. He said to Abraham already in Genesis 12, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And he says to his people in Deuteronomy 30, just as they're about to enter the promised land, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse, which shall you choose? Choose life that you may live. See, our God is a, is a covenant God and anyone who rejects the gospel message, anyone who hates and persecutes Christians will come under the curse of God. And if they don't repent, that's where they'll stay. And, and the book of Revelation is very clear. They will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will weep and gnash their teeth eternally. You probably, and I'm thinking here of our children to help them a little bit, you're probably all familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia. In that book, you have the four children in this magical kingdom. There's also a message there. In fact, the lion, Aslan, represents Jesus Christ. And when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are explaining this Aslan, the lion, to the children, Lucy blurts out in fear, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, you know? Our Lord Jesus Christ is not safe, brothers and sisters. He's not safe at all. To those who reject him, those who reject the gospel, he is fierce, he is judge, 
and on the last day of the world, he will bring upon them a curse. So we go back to the cross where our Lord Jesus Christ is hanging and lamenting, just like his father David. And then you expect the curse from Jesus, right? He's not safe. But instead he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's not a curse. That's a prayer for forgiveness. And they're not empty words. You know, soon after Jesus Christ's resurrection and ascension, Pentecost would come. And that, that changed the world. Now the gospel goes out to the whole world. A well-meant gospel offer to everybody. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. You can have been a, a militant terrorist like Boko Haram. But if you repent, then you are saved. So you wonder, well, where, where's the curse? It's a delayed curse. I mean, John the Baptist said when Jesus comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, we're seeing the baptism of the Holy Spirit as more and more people are, are coming to faith throughout the world. But the fire is coming. The curse is coming. When our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, he will take all those who rejected him and throw them into the lake of fire. It is in this light that we also understand Psalm 109. The, the truth of life is that we have an, an amazing God who will give us everything. But if you reject him and you reject his anointed, a curse will come upon you. And we've got we've to be real about this, brothers and sisters. I mean, I'm sure that on this pulpit, like my own in Providence, there's been a number of times that we have prayed about the Middle East we have prayed that ISIS would be stopped, didn't you? Well, how do you think that's going to happen? We're going to send a delegation and have a tea party and say, why don't we get along together? No, no, we expect planes to go in there and drop bombs, bombs on ISIS. You know, that, that's the world we live in. If you are hostile and murderous, we will use lethal force. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't sit here in, in Edmonton, Alberta, far away from Boko Haram, in the Middle East, what's happening in the Philippines, in China. There is an unbelievable brutality. And those people find great comfort in Psalm 109 to know that God will judge. He will take care of his church he will punish the enemy. At the same time, we, rem we remember it is a delayed curse. Even right now in the Middle East, and, and we heard that from our, our brother from the Middle East, whose name eludes me right now, uh, Victor Atala. You heard him here, Reverend Victor Atala. He said to us, you know, that the youth in the Middle East are so disenchanted with the violence of, of ISIS, that they're looking for something new. And, and many of them are coming forward and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In the midst of the enemy, there's faith in Jesus Christ. 
You know, what's even striking is that in Matthew 23, Jesus Christ is, is cursing the Pharisees. And in, in, in 24, he talks about the final judgment. 25, he talks about the, the, the 10 maidens, five who will be locked out, the foolish maidens. But in the middle of that, at the end of Matthew 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. In the midst of the curse is the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of those who walk in darkness. You know, what's, what's really important too, brothers and sisters, is that theologically we understand that our God is he's just and last day of the world there will be a, a day of judgment but the justice and the wrath of God is not the thing that defines him. It's not the thing that stands out. We don't have an angry God. We don't have a just God. Above all else, we have a loving God. Yes, there will be justice. There will be a day of judgment. But we have an amazing, loving God who said already in the Old Testament, why would you reject the gospel? Why would you die? Turn to me and live. That's, that's the prominent message of our God. And that brings us to our final point in our closing words. Psalm 109 ends with words of praise and thanksgiving. David trusts that God will deliver him in such an amazing fashion that his enemies will be astounded. It's also fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember his last words on the cross? After all the weeping, and all the heartbreak, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. He died trusting in his God. He died trusting that the Father would vindicate him. And he did, with the resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. As Psalm 110 says, sat down at the right hand of God, Yahweh, so that his enemies became his footstool. And now Jesus Christ is King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords. He is ruling this world. Makes us understand the final words. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who condemn him. Our Lord Jesus Christ stands at our right hand. Words in the New Testament that remind me of this is Romans 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When Christians go through difficult times, when we are under attack or humiliated or unspeakable things happen to us, we have a, a Savior who not only experienced that in our place to pay for our sins, but he's like the hen who will gather the chicks under his wings. Is he safe? To me, he is. Amen.